that we're trying to locate the kids, and they, the best they could the best they could come up with was that they were on they were at the Tarrytown Rest Center. I'm trying to help a friend of mine. Uh, his sister took his his girls camping. They're, they're very young girls. The oldest is nine. The girls the girls just called in distress. They said that the, the aunt is driving very erratically. We think she's sick. The aunt isn't picking up the cell phone right now. The sister called. She can't talk anymore. There's three kids in the car. They're trying to five. They're trying to locate her. The woman's name is Diane Shula. We just put it out to the post car okay. and see if they could locate her because the 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 woman that's driving the car they think is having a medical emergency because she, she called and then she couldn't talk anymore and she's got five kids in the car. You need to know uh, whose name the car is registered to. Warren here. It's my car. It's your car. Yeah. Tell me, what would possess a loving, hardworking, detail-oriented mother of two to place not only her children, but also three of her nieces into a car and drive the wrong way on a busy New York interstate? She wasn't lost. She had driven this route many times. And this conundrum continues to puzzle her family and friends even to this day. Everyone is dying to know what happened to Aunt Diane. This is Strange and Unexplained, a True Crime Guys production. I'm your host, Michael, and I want to personally thank you for listening. Let's get into the story, shall we? So on the morning of Sunday, July 26, 2009, it was around 9.30 a.m., Diane and Daniel Schuler got up, packed their camper, their dog, and their kids, as well as three nieces, into the car and were heading for home. Daniel took the dog in the pickup truck with the camper attached, and Diane loaded herself and the five kids into a borrowed minivan. The campground the Schulers had been staying at for the weekend was about two and a half hours from their home in West Babylon, New York, and they had been to this campground many times. So what happened between then and around 1.30 p.m. that day is not exactly clear, but it cost the lives of eight people. Diane was supposed to stop and get the kids breakfast, then head home. However, for reasons unknown, She jumped on the Taconic State Parkway, heading south in the northbound fast lane. Diane was doing around 70 miles per hour for about 1.7 miles when she collided head-on with an SUV carrying three other men. Was this a classic case of drunk driving? Was it a suicide mission? Or was it a medical emergency gone way, way wrong? Anyone who knew Diane said she was a hard-working, well-organized, and actually somewhat of a control freak. But she was also very, very private. Someone who, to me, didn't seem like they wanted their weaknesses known. I understand that's a pretty common thing among people, but I think Diane took it to the extreme 
for example, she wasn't very vocal about having any type of um, medical appointments as far as even, even a dentist appointment. She was very private about this. She didn't want people to know that she went to the dentist or had any type of issues or, you know, she didn't want any type of trail of this sort of thing happening. And anyone that knew Diane, they, they spoke of this. She seemed somewhat perfect, somewhat altogether. And in 2011, HBO made a documentary about the crash. It's titled, There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane. I strongly recommend this documentary if you, if you are very interested in this case and want to know a little bit more. Um, there's a, now, it is HBO, so it is very graphic. Um, so, you know, <laughs> as they will tell you, viewer discretion is advised. Um, there are... They're, they do show the crash. They show the remnants of the crash. They show bodies. It's it's very, it's very detailed in the case. And you get a lot, but you also get a lot of knowledge about her family members. You get a lot of knowledge about her background. And um, it's definitely worth worth the watch if you're interested in this. So in the documentary, two stories are told. One is of a family trying to prove sainthood, and the other is waiting for admission of guilt. And they're both very steadfast in what they are claiming. The first family is the Schulers, obviously, Diane's own family, mostly consisting of Daniel and Jay Schuler. Jay is married to Daniel's brother, Jimmy, and she is Diane's sister-in-law. I know, uh, so when I say Jay, know that I'm referring to Jay Schuler, uh, her sister-in-law. Jay is also godmother to Diane and Daniel's children, five-year-old Brian and two-year-old daughter Erin. Throughout the documentary, Jay is seen by Daniel's side, and she always defends Diane, always. I think until this day, she is still defending Diane. Daniel and Jay claim there was some kind of medical emergency that caused Diane to lose control that morning. Against what the Westchester County Coroner Office reported. So why is this case still being investigated? It's because Jay and Daniel Schuler, who keep pushing and fighting to prove Diane was innocent. Daniel pointing out an abscessed tooth and a possible stroke as the reason for the crash and totally disregards the toxicology reports, which are as follows. Diane Schuler had a blood alcohol content of 0.19%. Investigators recovered a broken 1.75 liter bottle of vodka. Toxicology also reveals that Diane Schuler had a high level of THC in her blood. THC is the active ingredient contained in marijuana. So before you go writing this off as just another husband defending his wife or whatever, witnesses to the crash say Diane was not driving like an erratic drunk driver, but that she drove somewhat with precision. They said her hands were at 10 and 2. She never jerked or swerved, but stayed fixed on the road. But her behavior before the Taconic Parkway was very different. So let's lay out what we know. Around 9.30 a.m., the Schulers leave the campground and head home. Just a few minutes later, 
Diane stops at a nearby McDonald's and eats breakfast with the kids, allowing them to play on the playground for a few minutes. In total, though, they were at the McDonald's for roughly an hour. After leaving McDonald's, Diane stops at a Sunoco station just down the road. She pulls up to the gas pump and parks the car. There is video surveillance at this gas station. It shows her van pulling up. It shows Diane walking in. And she appears to look around in the store, walks up to the clerk, says something, and then walks out. Now, you'll notice that a lot of uh, newscasts, a lot of a lot of um, videos, a lot of news reports, whatever, will show or will say that Diane was looking for pain medication. But I don't think that's ever been confirmed. And obviously, the surveillance video is silent. So you, you, there's no way you can tell what she says. And as far as I know, the clerk has never been interviewed. But the clerk apparently tells her they don't have what she's looking for, judging by her body language. Uh, and so she goes back out, gets in the van, and drives off. The timestamp on the gas station video says 10.49 a.m. At 11.37, Diane calls her brother, Warren Hintz. Now, she has her brother's three daughters in the car with her at this time. Also, the van that she's driving belongs to her brother and sister-in-law, Warren and Jackie Hintz. They had, she had borrowed it to transport all five children, plus herself, obviously, for the weekend. So during the first phone call, Diane seemed fine. Warren recalled. They chatted about the girls and the upcoming play that evening. But just minutes later, at 11.45 a.m., a witness saw the red minivan pulled over on the side of the road, and Diane was out in front of the van with her hands on her knees as if she were about to be sick, as if she were about to be sick. In a lot of reports, it'll say that she's in the front of the van vomiting, but that's never been confirmed. And that'll be important later. Again, around 12.13, just a few more miles south, the red minivan is seen by witnesses driving erratically. One witness talks about how she was so close to the back of the car, they couldn't even see her headlights. She pulled over and again was seen bent over with her hands on her knees as if she were going to be sick. About 1 o'clock, Diane calls Warren Hintz. This time, she doesn't sound like herself, and she ends up handing the phone to her eldest niece, Emma. Emma tells her mom and dad there's something wrong with Aunt Diane, saying she can't see and she can't talk anymore. At this point, Warren knows something is wrong and tells Diane to stay where she is and he will come and get them. Diane was pulled over at this time, and Warren asked Emma what the signs say near her. She reads a sign that says Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow, and Warren knows where they are, just past the Tappan Zee Bridge, not too far from their home. It is here where her cell phone is later found. It was left on the side median and later recovered by police. So we're not really sure how her phone ended up there. Not sure if it was an accident, or if she didn't want to be tracked, or if she just forgot or maybe her niece laid it down. That that's is very unclear. That's a strange 
It's a very strange uh, circumstance in this story. So Warren calls Daniel, Diane's husband, and tells him what is going on, and all of them head in the direction of Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow. The family also calls 911, trying to see if they can find Diane because she is now not picking up the phone. Obviously, because, you know, it's on the side of the road. Now at this point, it is unclear why, but Diane jumps on the road and somehow ends up north of her location at the Taconic State Parkway. Her route and intentions are unknown. Some speculate she tried to take a different route home because she was afraid of being found driving drunk. But then at 1.28 p.m., Diane is seen turning down the exit ramp for the northbound side of the Taconic State Parkway. She goes down the ramp, just missing cars, and goes immediately over to the far right lane, somehow still missing cars. She gets up to 70 miles per hour and continues on this path for 1.7 miles before colliding head-on with a 2004 Chevy Trailblazer. All three men in the SUV, Michael Bastardi, who was 81 years old, his son Guy Bastardi, who was 49, and a family friend, Daniel Longo, who was 74, all died on impact. Along with Diane, her daughter, who was two-year-old, Erin, her niece, five-year-old, Kate, her niece, seven-year-old, Allison, and her other niece, eight-year-old, Emma Hance, were all killed. Miraculously, Diane's son, who was only five years old, Brian Schuler survived the crash. The minivan had been engulfed in flames when it was hit and very little physical evidence could be gathered from it. However, police did find a broken bottle of vodka, like they mentioned in the toxicology report, in the front passenger side floorboard. And just five days later, the state police would hold a press conference to reveal Diane's toxicology results. Like mentioned before, her blood alcohol level was 0.19. That's almost two and a half times higher than the legal limit, which is 0.8, or 0.08, I'm sorry. She also revealed high levels of THC. Now it was obvious, right? Diane Schuler got really drunk and high and drove the wrong way on the freeway, killing everyone. But the more you dig into this story, it just doesn't seem that black and white. Unless, of course, you ask the Bastardi family, who lost a father and a son in that crash, along with a family friend. You know, it's just kind of like disbelief right now, you know, how um, someone could jump in a car, put five kids in a car, and drink. How could other people not know? When you have five kids supposedly leaving the campground or wherever she was coming from, and you know, from the morning to when the accident happened at 1:30, uh, these are all questions that you know my family want to know, 
one note of truth. The truth about what triggered this seemingly loving mother to get behind the wheel in that condition and whether her family could have done anything to prevent it. On that Sunday afternoon, the three men were headed to Roseanne Guzzo's house. She was Guy Bastari's sister. Roseanne's house had a table set for a large family meal that would never get to be enjoyed. Roseanne had spoken to Guy shortly before the accident to check in and see how far away they were, even joking about what they were going to have for dinner, which was spaghetti and meatballs. When a significant amount of time passed and the Bastardi men had not arrived, Roseanne called her brother, then her father. There was no answer on either phone. This is when they knew something was up. Daniel Longo, the third man in the SUV, was survived by his brother, Joseph, who can be seen in the documentary talking about how his brother had, quote, a lot more life to live. These three men were ripped away from their family so suddenly. There was no closure, and the denial by the Schuler family just enraged them even more. The Schulers had hired a PI by the name of Tom Ruskin to investigate and retest Diane's DNA samples, but his findings aligned with that of the NY State Police Department. There were many civil suits filed in this case between the families and the state, but little came of any of it. The case took 11 months to close due to testing and retesting of samples by the Schulers. They were convinced that there was no way she was driving drunk. However, it was determined that the crash was ruled a homicide and that no one would be charged because the responsible party, Diane, obviously, had died in the crash. And it was determined that the coroner office had conducted the toxicology and autopsy professionally and with accuracy. But don't tell the Schulers that. Husband says there is no way she was drunk and high that day. Listen to this. I go to bed every night knowing my heart is clear. She did not drink. She's not an alcoholic. You listen to all that? She is not an alcoholic. Something medically had to happen. The Schulers, that mainly being Danny and Jay, took every opportunity and every news interview they could to stick up for Diane. They even hired an attorney by the name of Dominic Barbara. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he's no... uh, uh, What is the word I'm looking for? He's no stranger to the limelight. Let's put it that way. He's defended people such as... uh, Joey Botafuco, who was charged with choking his girlfriend, um, and and some other celebrity clients. And he's also had his own share of of crimes and being in the news and, and things like that. And he's since fallen from grace uh, quite hard. But here's what he had to say in an interview referring to the toxicology report. No, I don't say that the... Uh report is accurate or not accurate. What I say is that none of this case is logical. This is a woman who leaves a campground at nine in the morning, absolutely sober, speaks to people. My investigator, Tom, has, we have video, we have tapes, we have people we spoke to. She had no alcohol in her system. What, what occurs, they stopped to eat breakfast, I think at McDonald's. Yes. We have spoke to people there. We're getting the slips of what was purchased. And then for a trip that should have taken one hour where she finally had the accident, took four and a half hours. More and more people are coming forward and telling us how bizarre and strange her driving was. 
Uh, matter of fact, we now have uh, information about one of the phone calls where the child says that her aunt is having problems speaking and seeing, not slurred, not, but actually having trouble. Something happened. I'm not saying anybody put alcohol in his stomach, you know, something foolish like that, but none of this is logical. And of course, like I said before, Diane's sister-in-law, Jay Schuler, has defended her since day one. And here's what she had to say. No, Diane's family, Diane's brothers, Diane's father, this isn't the woman that they know. This woman drove this every single weekend. That's the voice of Thomas Rufkin, the Schuler's private investigator. This was a two and a half hour drive from the camp back to her home. It took her four hours to end up a place that's an hour and a half from the campsite. What did she do in that time? And we're asking the public to go to your website to give us a call today if they saw, heard, or know something. Do you think we'd be doing this if we thought she was an alcoholic? Absolutely not. The Absolutely whole family not. standing up and doing this and getting involved? Yeah, and that was Dominic Barbara again at the end. He had to throw in his two cents. The three were on a uh, morning show, a news morning show, and were interviewed together in Diane's defense. So the facts stand. Diane was, by the very definition, drunk and high when she caused this collision. There's been a lot of backstepping. There's been a lot of uh, crisscross theories and testimonies there's been because at one point in the documentary i remember jay saying that or uh not jay i'm sorry daniel saying that diane never smoked she never drank and then as the documentary goes on he goes well maybe she had a drink occasionally and then jay even goes on to say her you know her sister-in-law she goes on to say that that diane smoked weed every night to go to sleep. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that these these testimonies, they, they don't seem to hold a lot of weight with the family. There seems to be a lot of, um, it seems to be a lot of trying to justify her and her life. And I can understand that. From the family's point of view, someone who appeared to have everything together, who did everything right, who was probably the pride of her family, or one of the, one of the prides of her family, she she made a mistake. She absolutely made a mistake. And her family just can't, they can't stomach that. Or maybe, just maybe, Diane had had enough. Um, now this is a this is a dark theory. Uh, bear with me here. But in the documentary, I'm kind of going off the top here. This is this is the discussion part of the show, okay? In the documentary, there was a time where um, there was an interview with Daniel's parents, and his mother spoke about how she spoiled Daniel. She always did, and she thought that Diane was good for him because she did the same. She did everything for Daniel. Daniel got a lot of private time. He got a lot of alone time. It even came out later that Daniel didn't necessarily even want kids. That was heartbreaking when I heard that at first. And you can kind of see it. Um, you can kind of see it in his body language and hear it in his voice 
when he's around his son, even after his son Brian recovers from the crash, and he's because there's some footage of him taking care of him in the house, and it just it, it just struck me the wrong way. I felt if this man is willing to put forth this type of body language, this type of tone regarding his son in public on camera, I I just how does he? Yeah, I'm not saying he abuses his son. But I feel like there's a lot of selfishness there. For instance, the reason they took two vehicles, right? You have a van. A van is perfectly capable of pulling a pull-behind camper that a standard pickup truck can pull. As far as I know, they didn't have a, you know, a, a diesel F250 or or whatever you want, a, a Chevy 2500. They didn't have a truck like that. They just had a regular truck. Um, but the reason that they took the truck and the camper and the dog and all that was so was so Daniel could go down there early. So he would go down there a day early or earlier that morning at least every time they went to this campground so he could, quote, have some time before the kids get there. So that just... Daniel strikes me as, as another child for Diane, almost. And that was even... That was the exact words... From his own mother. His own mother said that Daniel was her oldest child in a lot of ways. And imagine how that could weigh on a woman. And also, Diane was the breadwinner. I haven't mentioned this yet, but Diane had a very sex- successful career. In uh, She worked for a cable company, I believe. She started there out of high school. Instead of going to college, she started there out of high school, worked her way up very quickly, um, into a six-figure salary. She was their breadwinner. She took care of everyone. She took care of those children. She said, I mean, other moms even said like she was the first one at the drop-off line. Her kids were always dressed, hair brushed, clean, you know, no snot running down the face or no stains on the shirt, nothing like that. It's a lot more than I can say for my kids. Um, but for lack of better terms, she was somewhat of a perfectionist. And it just doesn't seem likely that someone like her could, um, this is tough to say, but I I just don't know if she could keep that up for the rest of her life. Her children were young. She was in her mid-30s. She was 36 years old. Her children were, were very young. They had children late. And so she basically had two children plus an adult child to take care of. I know people say that jokingly a lot about husbands and wives and stuff like that, but I think in this case, in a lot of ways, it was true. Uh, Daniel and Diane, they worked opposite shifts. Daniel worked third shift, so you know he, had, he was at home during the day while no one was there, typically. Um, he was gone by himself to work. Um, it, just, it just struck me as very odd, and maybe Diane just couldn't do it anymore. But that theory, oh, that theory is so dark because even if you wanted to take your own life, okay, and maybe she thought that leaving her kids with Daniel was worse for them, right? Maybe she thought they're better off just coming with me. Regard, I don't know what her religious beliefs were. I don't know what if she believed in an afterlife or what. And I'm not trying to justify this at all. I'm just trying to make a theory. Um, maybe she thought that taking her children with her 
was better, right? But why take three of your nieces? Children you don't, children you're not responsible for. That's, that just seems so unfair. Um, it's just, it's just such a strange story. Because where, when she stopped at the McDonald's, is, to me, the stop at the McDonald's is the key, right? She's there for about an hour. The kids go play. She can't find any, any pain medication or whatever. Maybe she's hungover. But with that kind of blood alcohol content, I feel like she would have had to have consumed some type of alcohol that day. I may be wrong, but two and a half times the legal limit. A lot of uh, a lot of reports said that that was like equivalent of ten drinks. I don't know if they're talking about beers. I don't know if they're talking about cocktails. I don't know what they're talking about. Ten shots, maybe. Um, but they're. I'm not a big drinker myself, so I'm not sure. But either way, maybe while the kids were playing. Maybe that's when she decided to have a few more drinks. Or maybe what would it, what was giving her problems in her mouth with the abscess tooth, um, which Daniel brings up a lot in the documentary, maybe she was in a lot of pain with that and they didn't have the pain medication she wanted or needed and so she turned to alcohol or she turned to marijuana. We'll never know. But either way, this is a dark dark story with a tragic ending but there has been there has been one light that has come out of it and uh that is through the Hans family the the mother and father of the the three nieces which would be Diane's brother and his wife they have set up a foundation uh the Hans family foundation they honor the lives they're honoring the lives of their three beautiful daughters by ensuring happy, healthy, and safe children through innovative self-esteem education programming and the support of children in need. And for more information, you can go to HanceFamilyFoundation.org. I wanted to plug that in this podcast because, as far as I could tell, it was the only, it was the only shining light. And I want to I wanna, uh, let you guys hear an interview that... Jackie and Warren Hance did with NBC News, and they're talking about their daughter's memories, and they're also talking about their foundation. So here it is. I never knew her to drink, so why would she be drinking with my kids in the car and her kids in the car? Like, it's in no, just no. I just thought it's impossible, and it, it was a mistake. In the weeks and months after the funeral, Jackie slid beyond despair. I just wanted to be with the girl so bad that I got so emotional and so fixated on on seeing them again. And so the thought of being in this pain for ever was just too much to handle. You contemplated suicide. Mm -hmm. You even had a plan for how to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd been putting a few pills away from each prescription and taking one or two from Warren's, you know, and just hiding them. Jackie knew she had to change her life if she was going to survive. Her friends convinced her to rejoin their early morning runs. And after a while, they even suggested she think about having another child to help her heal. She refused to even consider the idea, feeling she was too broken to be a mother again. 
And besides, technically, it wasn't possible because she had had her tubes tied. But her friends persisted and got her to a fertility specialist. So you tried? I tried. And? I got pregnant. <laughs> On October 11, 2011, Casey Rose arrived. And for the first time in more than two years, Jackie felt joy. Oh my gosh, you see myself in the mirror? Listen to this. She says Emma, Allison, and Katie are always with her. In fact, they are the inspiration for the Hans Family Foundation, which helps young girls build confidence and self-esteem. The Hanses want every girl to be confident and happy, just as they wish for their own daughters. The foundation has become a mission for Warren. Does it keep one person out of trouble? Does it keep one girl from, you know, feeling bad about themselves for one day? You know, I know we've made a difference. Where that difference goes tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, you know, you can only, you can only dream. You can probably do three, right? To help support the foundation financially, Jackie has written a book, I'll See You Again. She writes about hope in the face of suffering and the spirit of her girls. My greatest desire is for people to know them that never get to know them. Maybe like Allison's future art teacher, or Emma's future mother-in-law, or Katie's future college roommate, you know, or somebody who didn't get the chance to meet them might meet them through the book. Jackie and Warren's new bundle of joy, Casey, is now 17 months old. A little girl teaching her parents to let go of some of their tragedy and to know that even after all that has been lost, there is still a way to go on. It just gives you a meaning again. When you lose everything and then you get something to hold on to, there's really no, no way to be able to describe it. Yeah. She brings a heartbeat to this house again. There was none. She brought us back to life. Again, that was an interview on the Today Show, done by NBC. I also forgot to mention that Jackie and Warren had a little girl, as you heard, um, which hopefully gives them a reason to continue on and, and I think it has I think it as you can hear in the video I think in the interview rather I think it has um, it has inspired them saved them in a lot of ways so I would like to continue this discussion if any of you have theories on uh, what happened to Aunt Diane speaking of what happened to Aunt Diane guys check out the documentary uh, it's available on YouTube um, but it's done by HBO it's an amazing documentary. It's definitely worth watching. And um, yeah, so that's the case of Diane Schuler and the Taconic Freeway crash. I don't like to do episodes um, that involve children, especially the deaths or, you know, the, the taking advantage of or the assaults of children in any way, shape, or form. But I think these stories are important to be reminders, to be on the lookout, because this could have happened to any of us. And in, and in researching this wrong way crash, I found dozens of other ones. This one just was the most heart-wrenching to me, and it, it kind of reached out to me. And I actually I spoke to Lauren about it. If you don't know who Lauren is, Lauren is my co-host on True Crime Guys podcast, which is True Crime Guys who produces this podcast. Uh, me and Lauren, we have a 
another true crime podcast where we talk um, serial killers, um, mostly solved crimes, strange crimes too on there as well. Just one-off cases. I'm not really so strange, but just one-off cases, small town crimes and things like that as well. Um, but I'd spoken with Lauren about this case and he had already looked into it before. And he was like, yes, he's like, you have to cover this case. It needs to be known. It needs to be more well-known. So I knew Lauren would have a strong opinion on this case one way or the other. And um, so that brings us to our next segment, the Lauren Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. Hey people, Lauren here, here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained, the case of what's wrong with Aunt Diane, Diane Schuler, a horrible car accident, wrong way driving incident that happened in 2009, which you just heard Michael talk about. Uh, my thoughts is that it's, it's obviously a tragedy and one that could have been avoided. I know her, um, her husband and her sister-in-law vehemently took a stance saying that it was, she had to have had some sort of medical episode that she she would never drink she would never put those kids at risk um, but that's the facts is that she did according to the toxicology report and the autopsy there's just no there's absolutely no denying the fact that she was intoxicated two and a half times approximately the legal limit plus had a large amount of marijuana in her system um, that level of alcohol, you know, vodka mixed with, with marijuana could make it very difficult to operate a motor vehicle. And then you got five screaming kids in the car, and I have a feeling she was hungover from the night before and may have continued to drink to try and get rid of the hangover. Michael, me and you know now hitting our 30s that you don't bounce back like you used to from drinking. She was 36. Um, I don't know whether she was drinking and hiding that from her husband for a while or if her husband is lying and maybe he's in a bit of denial and maybe they were alcoholics together for a while I don't know all I know is that she was drunk that day and she got behind the wheel made a terrible decision put a lot of lives at risk and it costed everyone you know that's that's just the sheer fact of it is it's as simple as that no matter how much they want to deny it and she may have been a great person and a great mother prior to that all that matters is that day she made a terrible, terrible decision. I think she took a gamble. She had a terrible migraine, and maybe even she hit the bottle a little bit more to try and get rid of the headache that morning after they stopped from McDonald's and the gas station and she couldn't get any aspirin. I think she may have hit the bottle a little bit more to try and hair the dog type of thing. And it got to the point where she was so intoxicated and cross-faded that she couldn't see very well and decided, I'm just going to try and race home and took the gamble. Like, if I can just get home quickly we're already behind schedule. They got this play. The kids got this play. And if I could just get home quickly, it'll all be fine. But you can't gamble like that with your life and other people's lives. And she ended up killing, you know, obviously four children and three innocent men. And, and it's amazing to me that that little boy survived as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it sucks. It's terrible. 
Um, but her family needs to, her, her husband and her sister-in-law need to come to the realization that, you know, they should just say, yes, my, my wife and my sister-in-law made a terrible decision that day. It's a tragedy. She was a great person. Um, I'm, you know, use this as a learning lesson. And it takes one moment to make some terrible decision like this, no matter, good, no matter how good of a person you are. If you decide to do that, you know, get behind the wheel when you are intoxicated like that, you know, anything can happen at that point. So that's my thought, guys. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. See y'all next week. All right, guys, there you have it. The mysterious Taconic Highway crash. Uh, Diane Schuler. what happened to Aunt Diane? Again, check out that documentary, What Happened to Aunt Diane, HBO documentary. You can check it out on YouTube. Guys, if you enjoyed this episode, there's a lot of ways you can help this show grow and progress. Best way, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen. If you guys could just take a couple seconds and just click five stars. Or if you'd like to write something, I'll give you a shout out on the show. So without further ado, let's shout out some recent reviewers, shall we? Okay, guys, hopefully I don't give anybody two shouts, but I would rather do that than miss people, right? I mean, who wouldn't want two shouts? All right, so Ashley Hay, 2020, she says, excited about this new podcast. Love all the episodes so far. Thank you so much, Ashley. Uh, Gwen Highway Far, 28, uh, fire emojis, loving this new series. Can't wait to hear more. Thank you. Carolina Crazies. Hey, shout out to the Carolinas. That's where I'm from, baby. Says, uh, loving it. Amazing job. Thank you. Uh, anyway, really, left a five-star review. Says, great stuff. Came over from True Crime Guys. Thank you very much, guys. Um, love Sweet Sam's. Said, straight fire emojis. Also uh, came over from TCG. Awesome. And Brittany Renee 86 Said, new favorite podcast. And also a TCG listener. So that's great, guys. Thank you guys so much for spreading the word and for reviewing the show. And um, if you want to take it a step further, if you really love the show, you want to get some early releases, uh, you want to get access to some other content that is available with this show, such as a sideshow that I've created called The Palette Cleanser, which will just be little segments placed together to kind of clear your mind from the disturbance of uh, true crime and the large intake of true crime that I think a lot of us typically enjoy. But sometimes it may be a little hard to sleep at night, or you just want to refresh your mind and remind yourself that there's a lot of good things in the world too. The Palette Cleanser may be for you. And you can find all of this content at patreon.com slash podcast. So at this time, I'd like to give a shout out to some new patrons of the show, I may have missed Patreon shoutouts last episode, so I'm going to go back a little bit. But I want to thank uh, Rossio Ross. Thank you so much. Patty Snow, Brittany DeGond, Patsy Davis, Michaela West, Jules, Pamela A. Smith, and Matthew Orozco. Guys, thank you so much for jumping on Patreon this early in this journey of this podcast. It means the world to me. It inspires me. It keeps me motivated. And I, I just can't thank you enough. And guys, again, if you want to be a patron of the show where you get early releases, uh, I usually release Patreon episodes around Wednesday or Thursday. And then the free that free episode will be released on Monday, the following Monday. So if you want to get your episode a few days early, 
also have access to the palate cleanser and whatever else I come up with here in the near future. I'm also working on other tiers for Patreon and things like that. Uh, if you want to get in on any of that, it's patreon.com slash podcast. Or if you guys just want to give us a follow on social media, that helps as well. It's at podcast on Instagram, at Twitter, uh, Strange and Unexplained on Facebook. And guys, if you're having a problem finding the podcast on free platforms for whatever reason, you can always uh, search True Crime Guys, and it should come up that way, especially on iTunes or Apple Podcast. All right, guys. Again, I want to thank you so much for listening to Strange and Unexplained. I will see you next week with a new, fresh, weird case. All right, guys. Keep creeping and uh, be strange. Just don't be a stranger.